the international calendars kicking into gear both here in New Zealand and over the other side of the ditch with the highly anticipated Australia-India series just about to take off. We're delighted to be joined by Australian ESPN Crick Info correspondent Dan Bretek, not just a cricket pundit, a highly respected journalist, an award-winning author and assistant editor at ESPN Crick Info. Dan, welcome to the Top Order podcast. Thank you guys for the very lovely introduction. Pleasure to be here. So let's jump straight into it. The White Ball series kicks off on Friday with three ODIs followed by the three T20s. What's intriguing you most about the White Ball side of this tour? Uh, well, first of all, I, I am fascinated by uh, the fact that so many of these guys have just played the IPL. They've just played a lot of 2020 cricket, but they've just played it in very different conditions to what you would think you'll be getting in sort of early season pitches in Australia. Not to say that there'll be as verdant green as some of the Plunkett Shield pitches have been in New Zealand in recent weeks. Yeah. But, um, yeah, there should be a little bit more bounce and a bit more carry. And, um, yeah, it's it's interesting as well to have uh, these matches form part of the preparation for the Indian team in particular for the Test Series. So it won't be exactly the same groups of players, but obviously a, a number of the, the, the high-profile ones and key performers for the Test Series are going to be getting their eye in, so to speak, in um, some white ball matches in Australia. And the, and the same applies for the, for the bowlers as well. The, the early sparring is going to be fascinating. And the white ball squads have stayed fairly similar to the one that toured um, at the back end of that English summer, just before the IPL. So aside from the odd tweak on the, the fringes, um, is there anyone that should feel unlucky that they've missed out? It's a good question. Uh, I think... Um, it's a um, it's a scenario where um, they had such you know they've still got a big squad so we don't we don't really know who of the of the of the big squad is just sort of there to run drinks or to be essentially a substitute um, uh, in case of injury um, but uh, yeah I, I think um, Nathan Lyon always feels a bit hard done by whenever he misses a squad um, and and I think. Um, yeah, he. It's just been sort of an ongoing. It's it's a little bit like um, you know mentioned someone like the the late great J- Dean Jones. Um, his time not being able to play in the Australian Test side while continuing in the in the in the one day side. I, I feel like for Nathan Lyon, it's a bit it's a bit the other way. Um, uh, and uh, also not so much un, unlucky in terms of of missing out, but uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens with Alex Carey because, yes, he's in the squad. Um, Matthew Wade, obviously, is also is also there. Mm. Um, Alex Carey, I think he's, um, he made 100 in the, in the, um, in, in the one-day series in England, obviously, and batted very well with Glenn Maxwell, but clearly he's not as much the flavour of the month now as he might have been 12 or 18 months ago, certainly during the, the World Cup. So he's someone who... He hasn't missed out at this stage, but he's going to have to continue to perform well to keep his spot. Do you do you think it's likely they would go with Wade at, at uh, in the in the limited over stuff with the gloves? Well, he certainly was picked ahead of Carey in the last of the T Twenty games. Mm. Um, whether that would then be reflected in the fifty over games is a is a question for the for the Australian selectors. I mean, I suppose it's got a little bit to do with. Um, you know, you, you're always to some degree preparing for your next global tournament, and obviously the next 50-over World Cup is a fair way away relative to the T20 World Cup. So, 
the fact that the gloves passed from Kerry to Wade in that last T20 in England um, when uh, that's the next global tournament for Australia to negotiate, that was uh, that was a significant move. You know, you, your mm. changing of your wicketkeeper always uh, always brings a little bit of a um, uh, a jolt to the to the team because, of course, there's only one of them. So, uh, yeah, it'll be intriguing to see how they um, how they go. And and obviously, um, yeah, we we um, I would expect that Kerry will still be the, the 50 over keeper to begin with but he knows as i say that um he's on relatively thin ice mm. and, and i mean obviously looking towards the future one name that has even generated a lot of buzz here here in new zealand cameron green i mean he's been described as the best since ponting the next ben stokes i guess for listeners outside of australia can you tell us a little bit about him and, and i you know is all this excitement warranted should we should we even over here be excited for for what he can be as a player the first impression you'd get from him as a player really depends on what you see him do first. If you saw him bat first, as someone like Greg Chappell did, you think that he's the best young batting talent of his generation and for mm. several generations. Wow. If you saw him bowl first, which Justin Langer did as coach of Western Australia a couple of years ago, um, and saw him take a five-wicket haul, his, basically his first spell as a first-class bowler, um, you think oh, well, he'll take 500 test wickets because he's <laughs> tall, he's got speed, he moves the ball, he's got a nice, easy action. Um, but, of course, the thing that is complicated about all of this is that um, at the age that he is, he's much more likely to get injured as a bowler than he is to get injured as a batsman. Um, and really, as far as pace bowlers are concerned, you want to get them to physical maturity, you know, sort of 24, 25 years of age without uh, essentially breaking them so badly they won't be able to be put back together again. So um, I think what you'll see is, at the moment, decidedly a batting all-rounder who maybe bowls a little bit. Um, his selection in the white ball squad is interesting in the sense that certainly his 50-over numbers don't really back up um, that selection just yet. The, the, his, his best performances by far have been in the longer form of the game. But the selectors clearly see this is a guy who's going to be around not only for a long time, but in a broad sense across the formats. Shit, well, you've got me worried from an Ashes perspective. <laughs> I think I might cancel my sports subscriptions, I think, for the next 20 years. <laughs> just, just on that all-rounders sort of space, what do you, what does Sean Abbott's prospects look like? He's had a really good start to that first-class season. Uh, you know, some saying he might qualify as an all-rounder. Uh, what, what are his prospects like this summer? Uh, oh, well, I think they're very good in the sense that, um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, uh, players who've been picked in these squads are like they don't have they're not really going to have the option of if say one of the quick bowlers pulls up sore between say back to back matches um, and um, needs to be replaced. They're not flying someone in from outside the squad. What they have is what they have. A little bit like when they're on an overseas tour. So, um, Test cricket being uh, as as challenging as it is um, physically for fast bowlers, I see Sean Abbott being a very good chance of figuring, and particularly figuring in conditions that are on the drier side. He's considered uh, one of the best, if not the best, reverse swing bowler in the country. Um, he's got a nice whippy action, can move the old ball both ways, and is the sort of um, action and the sort of bowler who um, can go up and down a few gears in pace to su to surprise um, a batsman, and, and I think that's that's part of the um, 
the the weapons he's got in his armory. And yes, absolutely, he's he as a as a batsman, I'd say he's probably in that kind of, I guess, um, Mitchell Johnson or Paul Rifle going back a few years. Uh, would be a really, really good number eight, and you know potentially someone who could who could make you a eighty or ninety or maybe even a hundred down there. Speaking of all rounders, we've also got Marcus Stoinis in that white ball squad coming off the back of a an IPL tournament where he floated up and down the order for Delhi a little bit throughout the course of the season, won them a couple of games. He'll feature in the white ball squad. Glenn Maxwell will feature in the white ball squad. You've mentioned Sean Abbott and also Cameron Green. What balance of all-rounders do you think the Australian selectors will go with going into these white ball for, uh, games against India early in the season? I think they've made it pretty clear that um, the more all-rounders they have, the better. Um, that, was a, that was a clear change in, in planning um, ahead of that England series where one of the things that was interesting about it, obviously, was that they had a hell of a lot of time to think about that series and then think about what decisions they made for that series and what the implications were um, going, uh, going ahead into, into coming years. And one of the things that they very uh, publicly were, were clear about was they have reckoned that having gone with a team in the 2019 World Cup that was quite heavy on specialists, you know, you had um, occasionally the, the, the tail looked looked a bit long in, in particular. I mean, I, you know, I can recall um, a, a, a quite fluky but entertaining innings from Nathan Coulter-Nile that's probably saved Australia from losing to the West Indies after a, a batting collapse. That um, is the, the kind of the pivot that they've made. And I think that's actually served as a, um, uh, as a, as a saving grace, really, for Stoinis. I think there was um, plenty of discussion about whether he had a future because he didn't really deliver um, much in that World Cup. Um, but the fact that uh, they've wanted to change that approach, and he's um, he delivers, um, uh, he 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 gives something with the with the ball that I'd say is is pretty similar to to Colin de Granholm, um, and and has a um, he also has a sense um, that he wants to be bowling when it's difficult, which is not you know not something everyone um, as a bowler in white ball cricket necessarily has about them, so. Um, I think that the pivot in tactics for Australia has been a very good thing for him. And one thing that I'll be interested to see as well, I know we're going to talk about the Big Bash a bit further down the track, but I'll be interested to see how he fares um, with the rule changes that have come in and whether the rule changes with a, a couple of power playovers later in an innings means maybe that the Melbourne Stars um, float him maybe a little bit up and, up and down the order because it's clear that in terms of his Australian future, it's in the middle order, not at the top. And before we move on to the Test Series against India, what do you make of the Indian ODI and T20 squads? Obviously, there's some recency bias from having watched the IPL, but it just feels like they're chock full of stars and an incredibly explosive squad from sort of 1 to 18. And do you think they might even go into that series against Australia as slight favourites? Uh, again, I think the conditions are the, are the, the key to, to that. If the, if the wickets that we have prepared at the SCG in Monica Oval... Um, tend to be, I guess you'd say, um, uh, one-day wickets, as in tell the curator, just prepare a shirt front flat wicket for us. Um, that, uh, uh, that will play well into, into India's favour. Also, the overhead conditions. Obviously, sometimes in, in Sydney, the ball can swing around quite a bit. Um, uh, I think Rohit Sharma, obviously, is a, is a huge miss for, for India. Um, and I think that'll make a, make a big difference to... Um, uh, a, a big difference to the way that um, that Australia see that 
that contest, particularly at the at the top of the order. It places still more focus, if as if there couldn't be any more, on on Virat Kohli. Um, he, in terms of his encounters with Australia in in recent times, um, it seems like in white ball cricket it just gets better and better and better and better. Test cricket, it's a bit more of an even contest. Certainly. Um, uh, you know, the Australians haven't had um, everything go against them in terms of dealing with Virat Kohli. So um, I'm really interested to see how he responds to um, having an Indian top order without uh, without Rohit there. And on that Rohit Sharma situation, I mean, has you know, you're probably more plugged in than, than the general fan. Has there been any more clarity about that situation with India? It seems like the lines of communication obviously have fallen down a little bit there with, with the BCCI. Yeah, it is a it is an intriguing one. I mean, I, I think um, uh, it's 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 always a little bit um, uh, opaque. I, I guess you, I guess you'd say um, in in terms of um, what's going on with the with the Indian team and, and injuries at times. Um, I think with um, with him and with his uh, with his hamstring, like um, I'm not sure whether the the the, the team management and Rohit maybe necessarily have had the same definition of 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 recovery or 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 fitness. Mm. Um, whether um, you know, and I'm not I'm not sure whether it's that the uh, you know often you find with hamstring injuries, you know, the, the the muscle is healed, but the time it has taken for the muscle to heal maybe means that a little bit of conditioning goes out and needing to to um, put in a certain amount of, of hours or yards, whatever you want to call it, to be back to the general um, fitness and durability level that you would want, particularly for playing longer forms of the game. So, um, I mean, one thing that, that Rohit has made clear is that um, he, he thought he was fine to go earlier because, um, uh, because he was thinking in terms of 2020 matches. Um, obviously, the first matches in Australia are 50 overs, then there's three 2020 matches and then we're talking about test matches. So I think that's probably if there if there's a difference of opinion, it's probably it probably lies in how durable Rohit Sharma would be to play matches of a 50 over or even longer than that. And, and we, you know, I guess, uh, we, you know, we love the white ball stuff here, but it, it's, all, you know, the test matches certainly take precedent for, for us in, the, in this room here. Here in New Zealand, all the advertising has been focused on pretty much just Coley versus Australia whenever their ads come on TV, which looks a bit silly now that he's only here for that first test. And and also because that Indian side is just, just such packed with stars. But I mean, from a New Zealand perspective, Australia's just been such a tough side to beat at home. Are you expecting this to be a tight series? I think that um, India... India come to Australia now with absolutely no um, doubts in their mind about their capability of beating Australia, either at home or away. Obviously, they they did it in eighteen nineteen. Um, they uh, and and it's not that they um, uh, it's not that they did it um, necessarily in sort of favourable conditions. I know a lot at the time was made of how flat and slow the pitch at the MCG was. But we've got to remember that um, on a pretty lively Adelaide pitch at the start of the series, you know, when when um, when a visiting team is probably at its most vulnerable, um, they were able to, uh, to to come through and, and beat Australia in a really enthralling contest. And the main reason that they were able to 
was that the Indian pace bowling unit was able to get on top of the Australian top order um, pretty impressively in both innings. Now, obviously, David Warner and Steve Smith have come back. Um, that's going to be a huge change to the way that it's played. And I think um, I don't doubt that uh, that India's uh, Brains Trust will have been having a pretty close look at how things transpired between Australia and New Zealand um, last summer. Um, the fact that uh, while um, Steve Smith, I think, was, um, uh, I'd say, corralled into slower scoring, um, had to work extremely hard for his runs. And really, at times, I think um, he had to um, really forgo his own ego and kind of become the support uh, batsman in partnership with Marnus Labashain in particular on a few occasions last summer. Um, that will be something that India will have taken note of. Um, but also the fact that um, clearly there have been some Sheffield Shield sides in the, uh, the four-game bracket that took place um, in recent weeks in Adelaide. Um, who were more effective at being able to get through Labuschagne than we've seen in recent times in international cricket. So those are a couple of, of things that I think are going to be really critical to um, how close the series is because obviously the, um, the, the dominant theme of Australia's wins against India in recent seasons prior, so in 2014-15 um, and 2011-12, is that the Australians had... Um, dominant batsmen who were putting up scores that meant that um, India's uh, top order was always under pressure. Let's deep dive into that Australian squad again. Do you expect the selectors to show faith in the incumbents in Joe Burns, Travis Head and Matthew Wade for that first test or are we likely to see Pukowski or Cameron Green get a, a go early on in that series? I'm expecting that Dave Warner's opening partner will be Joe Burns. Um, I don't think they could have been much clearer on that. Um, certainly to begin with. Um, and I think that needs to be seen in the context of, again, 2018-19, uh, uh, the Indian pace bowling, Brumra, Shami, Ishan Sharma, they bowled um, spells of such high quality and such sort of sustained pressure um, that it really, um, it really had a, a quite degenerative, degenerative effect on Aaron Finch in particular, who obviously at the time was, New in Test cricket, but a very seasoned, experienced player. Um, but he really had his his technique uh, pulled apart steadily um, over the course of that Test series, uh, to the point that he was out of the out of the team by the end of it. So um, I think that's the thing that the Australians are remembering that um, they don't necessarily want to throw in a debutante at the top of the order against that quality of new ball bowling. But I don't think that necessarily means that we won't see Pekowski. I think. There is also the possibility of Pukowski batting somewhere else in the order. And in terms of playing a role, Burns' contribution alongside Dave Warner at the top against the new ball, you know, with the with the exception of uh, of, of Boxing Day, as you guys may well remember last year. That's about the, um, only, the only good those, moment we had. <laughs> yeah, so that, um, his contribution at the top of the order was significant, um, not only in, I suppose, the way that, that he's, he had good partnerships with Warner. Um, but, you know, the, I, I, I think there's a little bit in the idea that um, if you've got an opening combination that is demonstrating a, a good degree of, of chemistry, you, you want to try to keep them together. But I think a lot of people in this debate are forgetting that uh, Will Pekowski had never opened for Victoria until a month ago. Mm. So, or not even that. So, um uh, he stands as much chance, I think, of coming in if, say, 
uh, Matthew Wade has a couple of low scores or Travis Head has a couple of low scores um, than uh, necessarily as Dave Warner's opening partner. I mean, all the press has been about these two 21, 22-year-olds, but the fact of the matter is that they may not play in that first test or, or even in the series. Can you remember a time when there's been so much buzz about young Australian cricketers who have yet to make their debuts? I think at this level of buzz, you probably have to go back to the mid-90s when you had a you know a, a 19 or 20-year-old Ricky Ponting going around shield cricket and looking at such a distance better than everyone else who was around at the time. Mm. Um, and that, at the time, was also in a much, you'd, you'd have to argue, just about the deepest field of batting talent Australia's ever produced. Um, and I think... In you know, in reference to to Perkowski and and Green, they've both demonstrated a real desire to bat for long periods, um, and a real desire to bat for long periods that doesn't just stand out among peers or among um, uh, other players playing Sheffield Shield cricket, but it stands out among pretty much any young cricketer of their generation. Like the the um, we've had, you know, we're entering ten seasons of the, of the Big Bash League in Australia. Um, there is a great temptation when you are at a developmental time of your career to make decisions in terms of the way that you want to um, go as a as a cricketer that will um, that will help you in the in the in the shortest format and maybe not help you in the in the longer formats. But the fact that they both just want to bat all day um, and not necessarily um, try to you know raise their raise their strike rate every hour there at the crease, just bat at the same tempo. Um, I think that's one of the things that's got um, Australian cricket excited to a degree that I haven't seen since Ponting came through. It feels like the bowling attack's pretty locked and loaded for the start of the summer, but what about the guys on the fringes like Michael Nisa, uh, Sean Abbott we mentioned earlier, and also Mitch Swepson from Queensland? Are we likely to see any of them get an opportunity in this four-test series, uh, even in somewhere like Sydney? Uh, I think, as I say, Sean Abbott, Michael Nisa, their best chances will come if there is an injury to um, Stark, Hazelwood, Cummins or James Pattinson. Um, and, I, and I think that that would be fairly, um, that would be fairly clear. They'd, they'd know that. Um, Mish Swepson was unbelievably impressive in the uh, opening shield rounds in, in Adelaide. He basically... Um, he commanded attention every time he took the ball in a way that Shane Warne once did. Um, that's not to say that he's anywhere near as good as Warne, but uh, the fact that he wanted to be bowling when the game was tight, when it was up for grabs, and the fact that he was able to, on a couple of occasions, really impose his will on things to turn the direction of a game, that was as that was almost as exciting as the volume of wickets that he took. Mm. So um, the Australian selectors will be thinking, yeah, we need to... We need to um, uh, to to um, give him an opportunity at, at test level very soon, particularly on the basis that when Australia goes to Asia, they need to be playing two spinners and they want to be playing two spinners of quality who both want the ball when the game is on the line. So um, the only thing that I think complicates that vision as far as the Australian selectors are concerned is that um, no one plays spin bowling better than India. Uh, and so um, it's probably only Sydney, realistically, where you would be expecting Swepson to play. That's obviously, of course, if Nathan Lyon uh, remains fit through the series, but he's got an excellent record of, of doing so. Um, it's really a matter of whether they think in terms of the balance of, of the Australian attack, the balance of 
um, the series. So, for instance, you know, if the, if the series is decided by the time that they get to Sydney, that might have some say in it as well. Um, but also, you know, we talked before about Cameron Green and, you know, thinking of him primarily as a batsman who bowls a bit. Um, I'm not sure if he is going to be at the point where he can be a genuine third seam bowling all-rounder um, to give the selectors enough kind of um, uh, certainty that they can play two spinners in Australia and be fine to to go ahead with with that uh, balance. Because you'll remember, of course, last summer that um, Swepson was in the squad for the SCG test. Mm. New Zealand played two spinners and Australia didn't. Um, which, uh, look, I, I've got to say I felt at the time was a bit of a missed opportunity um, and uh, there was a further opportunity lost this year, of course, with the postponement of the Bangladesh tour due to COVID. With the scheduling and grain selection for the summer, do you see that having an impact? Australia obviously have a, a great record at the Gabba. I think England last won a game there in sort of 1066 around the Battle of Hastings <laughs> or something like that. Um, do you think this has any sort of impact on on the summer? Does it play potentially into India's hands a little bit? Gives them an opening? I think this schedule is probably... Um, it's not quite as good a schedule for India as the one was as the one in 2018-19. Obviously, 2018-19, they started in Adelaide, um, they then went on to Perth, and then they finished in Melbourne and Sydney. Um, of those pitches, Adelaide was a lively one. There was some, there was enough, there was enough with the ball, but it was also a day test match rather than a day night test. So. The fact that it's, a, it's India's first ever day-night test away, I think that's a decided advantage for Australia. Um, and then the fact that the series is ending at the Gabba, and it's ending at the Gabba later in the summer than we usually see at the Gabba, that means the pitch in Brisbane will be... Um, it's, it, basically, it'll have had more sun on it. It'll, it'll be harder, which will mean it'll probably bounce a bit more. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, you might remember that in the 2014-15 season, um, after the death of Philip Hughes, there had to be a reshuffle in the schedule. Adelaide became the first test, Brisbane uh, the, the, um, the second test. And that was, um, a, uh, that was a significant thing in itself because the pitch for the Gabba test, it was quick, it was bouncy, but also being harder, it started to crack up mm. towards the end of the game and that became a... Um, a, a real factor as the as the game went on. So um, I think Australia would be pretty happy with uh, the fact that they are still playing in Brisbane. Um, yes, in a in a in a perfect world where Tim Payne is just deciding the schedule on his own, he obviously would have wanted Brisbane first. But um, I think starting off with a day night test where Australia know Adelaide so well, that's almost as big an advantage as if they were playing at the Gabba first up. We've talked a little bit about the class in that Indian batting side that's obviously going to miss Kohli um, later in the series. And the stereotype, of course, that, you know, Indian batsmen and actually most batsmen struggle going to Australia. I don't want to bring this up for the Kiwi guys, but we, we all thought there was a chance um, in that series last year and uh, didn't really seem to uh, manifest itself in that way. What what do you think the Australian bowling attack is is thinking in terms of their advantage against that Indian batting lineup? That they think they've got one, or, or or do they think that they've got some you know some worthy foes that that may actually sort of um, I guess uh, cancel out that stereotype? Uh, well, I think there's probably three factors that 
determine um, a, a degree of quiet confidence among among Australia's bowlers going into this series. Um, one is that uh, on balance, you would think they'll have more runs to defend. Um, that doesn't just mean better position in the games. That also means more time to put their feet up between innings, which means um, less kind of uh, deterioration in their in their in their bodies and their minds over the course of a series. Um, so that's that's one that's one thing. Um, a- another is that um, they uh, hope and expect that the pitchers will have a bit more life in them. Uh, certainly Melbourne, they would expect, would have a little bit more life in it and be a bit more of an equitable service mm. along the lines of the one that you saw for the Boxing Day test last year, which, um, you know, uh, it was certainly a, a, a Melbourne pitch that Pat Cummins was able to get the ball through on, which um, if if he's able to do that in, in Melbourne, um, he's going to make anyone hop around. Um, and uh, the third thing is that... Um, since 1819, obviously they have played a series of test matches and series together. Um, there hasn't been a huge amount of injuries in the Australian fast bowling group. Just uh, Josh Hazelwood missing um, a couple of test matches last summer was the was the main one. But they've had an opportunity to play a lot more together um, relative to 1819, when obviously the team was still kind of um, coping with the fallout from Newlands. Um, they had a lot of um, uh, a lot of media attention on them that that I think was was um, distracting from their focus at times, and, and various members of the of, of the of the squad and the bowling group have, have had to learn to to deal better with that. Um, and also, you know, they're just more familiar with the with the circumstances. You know, they've got um, you know they they know exactly where they stand with Justin Langer. They have. Um, they have an assistant coach in in Andrew McDonald, who's a very good people person, and and I think a, a good um, uh, lieutenant and offsider for Langer, who can be a little bit intense at times. So that those things have all come together, meaning that um, yeah, there's 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 a good degree of confidence and obviously maturity about that bowling attack because none of um, Stark, Cummins, Pattinson, or Hazelwood are you know young fast bowlers on the up anymore. They're all hardened and well-established bowlers. You mentioned that that established pace attack, but how likely do you think we are to see rotation of both of the attacks? You've, you've got that bubble intensity. You've got um, a cricket schedule that's kind of backing up and, and obviously all of the, the COVID-related components, which mean that the conditioning might not be um, quite there. What do you expect to see in terms of whether or not it's you know the same 11 or 12 guys for both sides throughout the series or whether we're going to see like that England series against West Indies and, and Pakistan, lots of ins and outs? Uh, it will depend a lot on um, injuries and I guess the ebb and flow of games. As I say, if the, Austra- like, um, if the Australian team is able to maintain, say, the whip hand in the series and be bowling India out for relatively low scores and scoring a lot of runs themselves, um, they'll do everything they can to keep, uh, say, um, Hazelwood, Cummins and Stark together. Um, if that doesn't transpire and India managed to make 550 in Adelaide or, um, or make, um, uh, you know, just make a, a, a big score at, su- at some point in the series, which, which, um, which ups the, the, the number of overs required, um, that's when you're likely to see changes. Um, and, and I also think the, 
you know, at times the, the, the Australian selectors are quite keen to <clears throat> unleash James Pattinson because um, of the of the group, no one kind of um, uh, no, no one fits the, the the model of the the, the, the sort of the the, um, the the angry off the leash fast bowler um, with 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 slightly crazed eyes in celebration of, of wickets, anything like James Pattinson, and you know it's a it's a great spectacle to to watch. So. Um, they will like an opportunity to to um, to inject him into the series at, at some point, and you would think on balance, when you've got uh, batting of the the quality, even once Virakohli goes home, the quality of 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 Chaipajara, um, Ajinka Rahani, those guys that they you would expect that they're going to um, be able to put on a big score at some stage, which will have flow on effects for the bowling attack. Yeah, I mean, who do you see on that Indian side that that is really key in that batting lineup in terms of you know obviously Kohli we've touched on, but yeah, like you say, he's he is heading home. Which, which guys do you think are the, are the most important for them? Well, I think they the the Australians certainly. Um, I mean, they based on the evidence of the last couple of series, they really do now um, home in a lot on Pajara. Um, they feel that he makes the hard runs. That enable the easier runs um, in the middle order. Not to say that um, uh, that that he does the you know it's not like he does Virat Kohli's dirty work, but he is a um, a, a high class top order player with an enormous amount of patience who is able to bat through high quality spells of of bowling and not really um, blink an eyelid. Um, his temperament is something that the Australians really admire. Um, the only thing that um, that they feel that they can, um, uh, or the only way they feel that they can get past him really is on pitches demonstrating a bit more bounce. And, and certainly uh, the evidence of the 18-19 series was that on the uh, quickest, bounciest pitch of the series in Perth, um, uh, they were able to, uh, to, to get past Pajara relatively easy, easier, which is something that, that hasn't, um, escape their memories and recollections of, of that series um, and at the same time you know part of the reason they have so much respect for Coley is that they know that on that same pitch he scored what was probably the 100 of the series mm-hmm. so um, I, I think uh, that yeah the, the battle between the Australian um, uh, pace attack and Pajara is going to be really interesting because obviously unlike Virat Coley's it's going to be going on all through the series. Yeah, you mentioned a lot of superstars there. Is there one X Factor player that you think could swing this series for either side? That's a good question. I'd say that um, uh, the 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 single the single battle that I re- that I reckon will will um, well I won't say it's it's not a single battle because it's 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 one bowler versus versus two batsmen. But um, I think. Uh, with his particular outstanding skills, um, uh, Jasprit Bumrah is going to need to get on top of both Manus Labuschagne and Steve Smith if India are to have a chance. Um, that's obviously a lot easier said than done. Um, but I think in terms of the pace that he's got, the accuracy he has, the variations that he has, um, his uh, comfort with... Um, you know, attacking batsmen with different lengths. Obviously, the the um, you know the, you'd be obviously well familiar with the 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 the, the contrast between a Trent Bolt and a Neil Wagner. Um, Boomer can 
can do both and has done both. Um, those sorts of things um, give him the kind of armory where, given the right conditions, um, he could create problems for uh, for, for both um, Labashain and Smith. And if he's creating problems for them, provided obviously that they've gotten past the the openers, um, that's really, I think, where the where the uh, the series is most likely to be won or lost. All right, we're gonna we're gonna ask you for a score prediction shortly, but just before we get to that, uh, as we've mentioned a couple of times, COVID nineteen has had a massive impact this year on cricket or on the whole world, actually. So this is the first international you know cricket fixtures that have returned to Australia. Is there sort of a buzz about this series in Australia? What does it look like from a fan capacity uh, point of view? Uh, are the fans going to turn up? Well, we know um, at least from the um uh, the early tickets, or well, not the early ticket sales, the, the ticket sales for the limited overs matches um, in terms of the uh, the SCG being at about half capacity, Monica Roval being about half of much less capacity. Um, they were virtually all sold out in a day last week. Um, so that was um, a really good indicator, I think, of um, of an enormous amount of interest in the in the series. Um, the other thing, and this is obviously, it's not a, it's not an exact apples with apples, but um, in terms of a general level of interest in and desire to uh, follow and be involved in cricket this season, um, at club level across Australia, the um, the anecdotal evidence, which will probably generally about halfway through the season, will be followed by something a bit more substantial. But the anecdotal evidence is that um, there's a um, there's been an enormous upsurge in uh, club registrations and interest in playing. And um, certainly the usual stories that you hear at the start of the season about this club's a bit short of numbers, that club's had to let go of the team. Those aren't the stories that you're hearing at this, at this point in the, in the summer. And I think that um, has a, uh, yeah, that, that, that's a pretty good temperature test, I think, for, for how many people are deeply engaged with the, uh, with cricket and that should reflect in the in the crowds for the series oh that's that's awesome to hear that there's there's uh there's that much excitement about the game we we did give you a little bit of warning though score prediction for the series can you give us one i'll say three one to australia um and i'd and i'd like the uh the the one that india wins to happen relatively early in the series so that we have a we have a contest all the way through um and you know perhaps a little bit like we saw in um, uh, in India in 2017, where Australia were not necessarily favoured at all to uh, to beat India, but won the first test, and that meant the rest of the series was um, uh, compulsively watchable stuff. Well, I certainly hope you're right in in that that uh, series stays alive. I think that was the that was probably the biggest downer from the the New Zealand point of view around that test series last year that we. You know, we just never fired a shot, and um, yeah, we less less said about that the better, probably. But but before we <laughs> let you go, um, you know, the big bash is is also on the horizon. There's been all this coverage lately uh, around these three new rule changes. We had a bit of uh, a banter amongst ourselves about it. The you know the the point structure, the tactical sub. What do you what do you make of it all? And and do you think it's going to excite the the public and the fans over there? Um, I think the problem that that they've got at the moment is that um, 
like I don't think there's anything particularly bad or wrong in essence about the rule changes. Well, I'd say this. The one thing that's bad about the rule changes is that the new rules have got terrible names. <laughs> um, I think that, the, you know, they're, the, 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 um, uh, you know, they, they, they kind of sound like, um, I don't know, marketing brands of washing brands of washing powder or something like that um but uh in terms of adding extra tactical elements to a 2020 contest i don't think that's a i don't think that's a bad thing nor do i think that 2020 was ever designed to be a static thing that never got um tinkered with uh the problem i think they've got is that if those are the remedies for the problems that the big bash has had in terms of um uh, declining broadcast audiences in particular, I mean, the crowds have gone down a little bit, but that's nowhere near as big an issue as declining broadcast audiences. Mm. Um, I just don't think that that's a sufficient. It's well, it's not even a sufficient remedy. It's not the remedy that matches the problem. The problem is that because they've had such rapid growth in the size of the tournament, um, audiences are not tuning into what is a major event every night. They are tuning in um, less often. To something that is more commonplace, um, and I, and you don't make something commonplace less commonplace by simply tweaking a few rules and not uh, doing anything about the length of the season. So that I think is the the, the central issue that uh, that I have to deal with, and it's a hard conversation to have because if they're going to reduce the number of games in the tournament, um, that's going to have to mean a discount with the broadcasters that they're already in dispute over with certainly with Channel Seven. So that's a a very complex and, and knotty problem for Cricket Australia to, to have to, to navigate. And I don't think that the, like I said, I, I don't think that the, that the rule changes are, are, are a big um, problem or, are, you know, there's something to be up in arms about. I think they will probably, um, they'll take a little bit of time to explain. Um, and I know that there's some fears that, uh, you know, your casual fans who um, watch the Big Bash because, it's entertaining might find it a little bit more, excuse me, a little bit more esoteric and hard to follow. But um, I don't think that's necessarily a, a, a huge problem because if you've got more things happening that excite or interest or engage the minds of the players and the, and the coaches, you'll also see some extra exciting and fascinating passages of play that you don't see under the current um, the current setup because every limited overs format of cricket, no matter how long it goes for, tends to you know it, it, it falls into a rhythm of of a um, uh, an intriguing and often free scoring start. Then there's a middle over period, and it doesn't really matter how much you shorten a game; it's always going to have a middle order period um, or middle overs period, I should say. So um, those tweaks will, um, I think. Uh, on balance, probably have a positive impact. I mean, I don't doubt, for instance, the um, the credibility of someone like Trent Woodhill in being involved in that process um, as an extremely well-travelled um, 2020 coach, list manager and operator. Um, but at the same time, like I say, I don't think that's the remedy for the main problem. And, and um, we, we made you predict the test series. Looking at all the BBL squads, does, does one side stand out above the rest for you on paper? Um, I tend to think that um, the way that the uh, the Melbourne Stars have um, set themselves up looks very promising. Um, one of the things that we still don't know, and this is really probably makes it harder to make a prediction than um, in terms of the um, international season, 
is we don't know what the availability of the Australian white ball players is going to be like for um, for the big bash um, in, in certain segments of it. You know, how much freedom of movement there's going to be between, um, <clears throat> between squads. So, obviously... Um, guys like Aaron Finch, Glenn Maxwell, and Marcus Stoinis, they make a huge difference to the fortunes of a, of a, of a big bash club and, and how much they're going to be around for is the, the, um, the, the question that's still to be answered because we, we only have a, for instance, we only have a, a set schedule and venues for the big bash up to the end of the year. All the fixtures have been announced, but we don't know what the venues are in, in the 2021 portion. So um, I'd say the Melbourne sales look good. Um, having had a you know a, a, a long run of, of of heartache in terms of um, making the finals a lot and never winning it, um, but uh, yeah, it, it's perhaps a little bit early to tell in terms of that player availability, which is so crucial. And um, we've recently spoken uh, with Shane Bond on on our podcast from the Thunder and, and David Hussey from the Stars. Um, they highlighted uh, Shane highlighted Tanvir Sanger as someone to watch, and and David highlighted Clint Hinchcliffe and uh, Hilton Cartwright as you know younger players that that we should keep an eye on. From your time around the Aussie circuit, are there any kind of less heralded names that you think could really break out in this in this version of the IPL or BBL? I actually, I'll, I'll, I'll second Shane Bond there. Um, I'd love to see Tanvir Sanger play a lot mm. um, because I think if he plays a lot, he will get better and better. Um, and he's a extremely entertaining, um, extremely entertaining kind of leg spinner. Um, and uh, you know, I'm not sure how much you saw of him at the Under 19s World Cup, but when he gets it right, he's fantastic. And um, so yeah, I'd uh, I'd like to think that um, he'll be presented with the conditions that that will um, allow him to, to to have an influence on the on the tournament. And and I think um, again, one of the things that'll be interesting with the with the rule changes with the uh, the floating power play is you're going to get instances where spin bowlers um, are going to have to bowl some power play overs later in an innings, either against a set batsman or in a in a situation where the ball's a bit old, older and the pitch is turning a little bit more, that kind of thing. So um, in that context, uh, I, I, I'd love to see Tanvir Sanger have a great tournament. Oh, well, thanks. Yeah, thanks very much for, for your time tonight. Before we let you go, we mentioned in the intro that you're an author. It's not often we have two Penguin Random House authors on the show at the same time. And, and, and uh, we also have your work for, for Crick Info. Where can people find your work? Is there anything coming up that you've got going on that you want to give a plug to? Uh, look, it's, um, yeah, I, I, I suppose one of the things that you, um, not take for granted, but you, you, you like, you like to think when you work for Crick Info that, that your work's not too hard to find. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I just encourage, um, encourage everyone to, um, uh, to, to get onto the, onto the site or through the, through the app or the, the social media channels and, uh, and, and keep posted on our, on our coverage and, and, and not think, even though there have been some challenges this year in terms of, of coverage and and, um, and and travel around getting to see teams and, and whatever that uh, we won't still provide a, a high-quality coverage of the uh, summer. Oh, awesome. Yeah, thanks very much. And, and uh, yeah, hope you enjoy the, the Aussie summer. We're certainly looking forward to it uh, over here in New Zealand and, and hopefully this is a, a nice tight series for us to, to all sit back and enjoy. Yeah, no worries at all, guys. And um, 
Yeah, uh, hope um, hope you likewise have a, a great summer across the ditch. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Top Order podcast. Before you disappear from our feed, if you're a new listener, please do go and check out the back catalogue. We've spoken recently to New Zealand coach Gary Stead. We've got Graham Thorpe. We've got Shane Dietz. We've got Barry Richards, Shane Bond, Colin Miller, all in the back catalogue. You can find the details, www.thetoporderpodcast.com. We're the Top Order podcast on Instagram, although we're still really figuring that out. We're at Top Order Pod on Facebook and Twitter. So don't be shy to jump on, give our tweets a share or a retweet, and we'll see you next week.